come on this morning to look at the book of Romans chapter 5, that passage that begins in verse 12 and ends, goes on to the end of the chapter. <laughs> I'm not sure how many of you are conscious of it, I think some of you may be, that over the course of the years my basic approach to scripture, my basic reading of scripture has changed in a number of ways and it's not easy to define all of the ways. I think I can tell you my theology's not changed. I don't think my understanding of God's truth with respect to the great tenets of the Christian faith, the great tenets of the Reformed confessions is any different than it was before, but my approach to scripture is really markedly different. And I think the Roman letter is a good example of this. And I preached through it a number of years back, and um, I'm going through it now, and I'm going through it with a little more detail, um, because it is so different the way I see it. Um, Again, I I don't want to overemphasize differences. I I don't want to overstate the things I think were lacking years ago. I don't want to say my training was insufficient, I think it was great training, and I think that my understanding of what my, my task was as a pastor was, was, was well-formed by that training. Um, but I also think my approach to Scripture was, and, and some of it was just practical, trying to keep my head above water in times when I had lots of ministries going on and I had little time to prepare for it, is that my basic idea was, well, you go to the Scriptures, you find the doctrine that's being taught there, and since I have this wonderful system of doctrine that's well-defined and well-articulated, and I've read many books about it, then I can just take the passage of Scripture, tie it in to my doctrinal positions, and then preach Preach the doctrines, and that's not bad. Preaching doctrines good. Keep you out of a lot of heresy. Keep you in the path of lots of truth. But I'm not sure that approach helped us to really understand actually what's going on in the Bible itself, what's actually being going, going on in the letters. And again, I think my approach to the book of Romans was, um, again, of that nature, of finding the doctrine, of preaching the doctrine, and maybe having not the sensitivity that the doctrines are embedded in a letter, in a letter that's written to a church, a letter that's written to a church with concerns that that church had that brought Paul to write the letter. And I was thinking about, particularly the book of Romans, how Romans comes into view in many of the traditional commentaries and ways of approach to the letter, as a more doctrinal dissertation, that Paul is writing something of an abbreviated systematic theology in 15 chapters, then he gets on to the, you know, the, the greetings. But it's basically 15 chapters of theological exposition going from sin to justification to assurance to you know, on and on and on and on. All these little, pas- all these little titles given to these passages and seeing little interrelatedness between the thing. Paul's just moving from thing to thing to thing to thing. Now one of the things that I was taught, and, and it's true, that Paul was looking to see the Romans as the church that was going to be the, kind of like the, the Western Antioch. Remember it was an Antioch of um, Syria where Paul was commissioned to the gospel labors. And he says in chapter 15, he did that whole route from Jerusalem to Illyricum, preaching the, the gospel of, of Christ. Illyricum, interestingly enough, is the modern Balkans. That's where Drain and Kimberly um, Baldwin are 
in that uh, school in Serbia. That's probably Paul was there. Probably Paul was in that area where they now labor. Because that's where Illyricum was. And Paul ministered the gospel to that area. But he tells the Romans he wants to now make another kind of circle. Once he brings the offering uh, for his people, for the Jewish people, uh, to, 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 to Jerusalem. That he wants to go by them to Spain. And, well, it's hard to make Antioch your sending church, your overseeing church, the church that's, you know, you keep in contact with when you're that far removed. You're going that far uh, west from Antioch. So Rome was the great place, this, the imperial city, the, the thriving church, uh, a church that uh, Paul didn't found, but uh, yet a church that could oversee him and his work that he intended to do. And so he wants to go by them, having their help, their support, their prayers, their counsel, whatever else they would provide for him that Antioch used to provide. Remember, after the missionary journeys, Paul was always going back to Antioch. Uh, because that was the sending church. So I think we had that kind of a pattern. And uh, Paul wanted Rome to be that pattern. And so the idea is that Paul wrote this letter to set out to the church at Rome his theology, his doctrine. Hey, I want your support, so let me tell you what I believe. You know, if somebody came and they're looking for our support, we say, well, let me see your, your, your uh, statement of faith. What, 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 what do you subscribe to? What the, what the confession of faith do you subscribe to? And so Paul's basically giving them something of his confession of faith. I know in chapter 1 he says he preached, he's ready to preach the gospel to those at Rome, but what he's preaching here is to believers. It's not the gospel that he preached to unbelievers. It's not the gospel that was preached to um, established churches. This is an established church. And Paul is writing a letter to them. And the gospel that he's speaking about, that he's ready to preach to them, is basically the gospel and its implications in the congregation of the people of God. In that sense, we preach the gospel every single Lord's Day. When we come to expound the scriptures, when we come to see the whole counsel of God, and we come to see the centrality of Jesus in the whole counsel of God, that's a proclamation of the gospel. It's not the proclamation of the gospel to the lost, but Christians need the gospel too. And we need to be rooted and grounded in the truth of the gospel so that the gospel is the thing that formulates our understanding of life in God's world and understanding our ethical responsibilities to God and one another. It's all rooted in the gospel. And Paul can't teach ethics in the latter part of the letter without going back to Jesus, without going back to the mercies of God. Um, He exhorts on the basis of gospel truth and gospel reality. Now, I was thinking, as I mentioned, I was thinking, and I got off track, but I was thinking about the relationship of the Roman letter where we see this systematic presentation, and we say, well, that's a systematic theology in miniature, and the book of Corinthians, where we don't see a systematic theology in um, miniature. And that's because in the Corinthian letter, what Paul does is he lays his cards on the table right away. He says, I hear there are divisions among you. He tells them, I've heard from those of the household of Koe, you're not getting along with one another. And then what he does is he preaches the gospel to them in a way that emphasizes those truths of the gospel that should bring them not to glory in preachers. That's the opening part. The wisdom of this world is foolishness with God. What are you doing look, do, do, trying to emulate the philosophers and what they do and saying I am of Plato or I am of Aristotle or I am of uh, Zeno or I'm of some other Greek philosopher that mindset in the Corinthian church was what Paul was addressing but he was addressing the problem through the gospel 
That the word of the cross is to those that perish foolishness, but to those that are saved is the power of God. He's proclaiming the gospel. And we might say, well, that's kind of a systematic theology in miniature, but we see it for what it is. He's raising those particular notes, those particular issues of the gospel to address a problem. So it's problem-centered, it's problem-oriented, it's problem-resolving, it's looking to resolve the problems, and emphasizing those aspects of the gospel that addresses those particular problems. And he's really doing the same thing in the church at Rome. What he's presenting in terms of universality of sin is that, and as he says, there's no distinction. You Jewish folks have no reason to pride in your heritage because you're a sinner too. We've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And you know what else? We're all being justified by faith. And so what we are in sin, what we are in grace, has leveled every one of us. No one has any reason to boast or pride himself or think he has a step up. I'm a a better kingdom citizen with a higher standing because of my ethnicity or none of that. None of that. It simply levels them all. And it's something Paul does consistently throughout the letter. He's addressing the problem and he's looking to resolve the problem in these arguments. I went and I looked at uh, a commentary that I was assigned to read when I took a course in the Book of Romans uh, when I was in school. And it's one of the best uh, commentaries in the Book of Romans, written by a Westminster Theological Seminary New Testament professor by the name of John Murray. And uh, I have it all marked up, so it's, it's, it's really an excellent commentary on Romans. But I, I thought I, I'm going to read through the Roman commentary by Murray and just see what I think of him today compared to what I thought of him back then. And I figured, well, instead of going to the beginning, let me begin where we are now in Romans. So I read his introduction to Romans chapter 5, verses 12 to 21, and it's kind of like the lights went on. Bingo, I see what's going on here, and I see why my approach has changed. And I just wanted to kind of lay it out to you in a way to illustrate um, what I think is happening with the way I'm looking to teach God's Word to you in this particular passage as well. Here's what Murray says. It's a little lengthy, but just try to be patient. And, and let me tell you what I'm going to read. I'm not, I'm not looking to criticize. This is really, really good stuff. This is excellent theology. This is stuff that I want to say amen to almost at every other or every um, sentence. Verse 12 to 21 in Romans 5, the apostle develops the parallel between Adam and Christ. And of course he does. Uh, he calls this section the analogy. Adam as the head of the whole human race. Christ is the head of the new humanity. That's true. That's exactly what we have here. That there is an analogy is shown by the statement in verse 14 that Adam is the type of the one to come. Brilliant. That's true. It is also shown by the sustained comparison that are instituted throughout the passage, whether expressly or by implication through verse 12, 15 through 19, uh, these parallels and comparisons. Uh, uh, we must not overlook the fact that from the outset there is a sustained contrast between the process that was set in operation by Adam, in other words, what happened in Adam, he says what was set in operation by Adam, and that is which is set in operation by Christ. So God has said in operation two things, one in Adam, one in Christ. There's an analogy, but analogy in respect of what is completely antithetical. So it's not just comparison, it's contrasting. It's contrasting the two. We cannot grasp 
Although there is some comparison, there is an analogy, yet there's also the emphasis is upon the contrast. We cannot grasp the truths of worldwide significance set forth in this passage unless we recognize the two antithetical, the two opposite complexes between Adam and Christ that are contrasted. The first is the complex of sin, condemnation, and death. Bingo, that's true. The second is that of righteousness, justification, and life. Read the passage. That's exactly what's here. It's exactly what's here. These are invariable combinations. Sin sets in operation the inevitable consequences of condemnation. Sin leads to condemnation. Condemnation leads to death. Righteousness and the consequences of justification and life. And as is obvious, these are the anti- these are antithetical at each point of the parable of, of, of the parallel. Um, The fact is of paramount importance, however, in this passage is that the operation of these complexes of sin, uh, uh, condemnation and death, of of, of righteousness, life and justification, um, is that the human race is not to be viewed atomistically. Um, In other words, every individual. Every individual is not his own atom. There's only one atom. And that atom represents all of the humanity that came from him by a solidarity that exists of the human race has come from Adam biologically um, he is our first father so everyone's not Adam <laughs> that's one of the things that uh, uh, Augustine's nemesis Pelagius that's what he taught every man is his own Adam you stand or fall before God on your own merits on your own and we're all in the same place and situation as Adam well not true and that's what um, Marie's saying solidarity comes into effect our being joined in solidarity union with we participate in Adam in fall we participate in Jesus in salvation and so there is this um, solidarity or participation or union Sin does not set in operation the sequence associated with it apart from the relationship, the corporate relationship, the relationship that exists between Adam and the human race and the race to Adam. And righteousness is not brought to bear upon sin, condemnation, and death complex, which Adam inaugurated apart from our relationship in union with Christ. The relationship that Christ sustains to lost men and to lost men in Christ as we're brought into participation in the blessings of Jesus. This passage is eviscerated of governing principle. The two solidaric relationships are not appreciated. That we stand in Adam or we stand in Christ. And it is futile to try to interpret the passage except in these terms. Okay. All good. All good. All right. All amen. Murray's right on. Wonderful theology. And it was just in a book on theology. I'd say, hey, that's great. I learned a lot. That's wonderful stuff. Um, but the point is, he's commenting. He's, this is a commentary on Romans, and he asks the question. And, and I'm sorry, he's commentary on Romans, and the theology can be seen by inference and implication, really, to be there. He's not. He's not just throwing dust at us. He's. Uh, he's. He's sees things theologically that clearly can be implied and inferred. From the text itself, I don't I don't disagree with this. So, any criticism I'm making is not the criticism of denying the things that he is saying. But here's here's where the rub comes in. He asks the question: What is the purpose of this passage? That's a great question. And you know that that to me is the difference in where I am today and where I was a long time ago. I used to think when I came to the scriptures, I knew the, I knew the issues, I knew the, the answers. 
I wasn't coming with questions. I was coming with ready-made answers. And so I had these ready-made answers, and I just had to find the text to, to, to connect to the answers I already had. So I had a ready-made system of theology, find the text, just hook it in, and let's go. Let's go. But I didn't ask these questions. And Marie's right to ask the question. But the question is, does he get the answer right? What is the purpose of this passage in relationship to his theme? He says, various answers could properly be given. Perhaps none is more relevant than that the apostle is now demonstrating that the divine method of justifying the ungodly proceeds from and is necessitated by the principles in terms of which God governs the human race. That's where he, where he goes. So he's connecting it with what came before. Justification. God's method of justifying the ungodly. And I guess the assumption is that was mainly Paul's concern. To lay it out. Lay out the gospel that he preached among the ungodly. How ungodly become godly. How the unjustified become justified. How those under sin come under grace. He's, he's saying that's really the theme of the letter. And now we're moving from that principle of the divine method of justifying the ungodly through faith in Jesus Christ. And now we're moving to what is the underlying terms by which God governs the human race. So, you see what he's doing. He's saying all of this is connecting justification with the wider theology of our creation in Adam, our solidarity with Adam. So it really goes from the justifying grace of the gospel to the anthropology that underlies it. So we're getting anthropology here. So we're going from soteriology, which deals with salvation, now to anthropology, which deals with the human race. Well, I don't want to get into this in any measure of detail. But I'm going to ask you the question. In the light of what we have seen in Paul's theme in this letter, why do you think that Paul went from discussing the benefits of justification, which we all have, we all being justified by faith, we all have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We all have access into this grace by which we stand. We all rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We all benefit by our tribulations and afflictions. We all are those who know that God's commended his love towards us in that way while we're yet sinners. Christ died for us. We all see that we're sin, then uh, um, um, much more now being justified by his grace, we will be saved by his life. He's brought all these considerations, what we have in Jesus, the benefits we have in Jesus. We've received this reconciliation. And not just the Jews, not just the Gentiles, we all. Why would he go into Adam and Christ in this contrast at this point? Tim? Could it be that maybe just emphasizing again the reality that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and there's no distinction between Jew and Gentile? Yeah, well, wouldn't you think? <laughs> that, that's exactly what he's doing. He's saying, now this is a reality that can also be seen. Now look at the language. He says, um, therefore, so this is all connected. Therefore, just as sin entered into the world, and death passed through all men, um, just as this is true of us in sin, so in the grace of the gospel, now this has become true. And it's become true of us all. 
We all have been joined to Adam in sin. We all are in the church are joined to Jesus in the gospel. We're all joined to Jesus in faith. And again, he's simply underscoring, giving greater impetus to the argument that's there. That all of us in Adam died. All of us in Christ live. And all the curse and all of the liabilities and all of the danger and all of the peril that accompanied our relationship to Adam is now over and gone. And in Christ, a new reality has come about. I love the language that Murray, in fact, uses, is that we see Adam as the head of the whole human race. Christ is the head of a new humanity. So I think you see Adam as the old humanity. What we were in Adam is describes what we were prior to the coming of the gospel. So again, Paul is addressing people in the church. He's telling them, here's where you were prior to the coming of the gospel. He's told them that already in chapter 2, but he's now reasserting it. Now in more biblical terms, now seeing the whole way in which God has dealt with humanity through Adam in fall and through Christ in salvation. And he's underscoring the commonality of all believers in both of those situations. So again, it's cutting out the... The, the sense that any one of us can, can, can have anything to boast in. Because, you know, what happened to Adam happened when we were not there. We, we bear the results of it. The consequences we experience. But we didn't have a part in it. Of course, that's where the rub comes in with a lot of people, the whole doctrine of original sin. Wait a minute, I wouldn't dare. How does God dare to treat me in uh, Adam in a way that doesn't take into account my own individuality? And Murray's argument is clear. God has dealt with the human race in terms of a representative person who stands or falls for us. And that's true in Jesus too, that we were not there. When Jesus, I mean, in the sense we were there, and that you know, God's purpose and plan, uh, we we were, were joined to Christ in a union that is an eternal union. We were chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. The Ephesian uh, one statement, but the fact is, when Jesus accomplished redemption for us, He did it, and so our glory can never be in ourselves; has to be in Him. And you know, the connecting links between what proceeded in this whole question of what God did for us when we were weak, when we were sinners, when we were out of strength. Now much more, these blessings have come to us. Also is here in the language of uh, verse um, 2020. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Again, there is the much more of the grace of the gospel. There's the much more of what Christ has done for us and now does for us in life. Now there's much more that we have in the grace of the gospel. So again, this is not something new that Paul's going to. It's not getting into a new discussion of how God governs the world. It's going into the question of how believers in Rome get on with one another and see one another in the light of our common connection with the two great heads of the human race, Adam on the one hand and Jesus on the other. 
So again, it's not going to answer all of our questions about how God governs the world. It only answers our questions about God's government of the world in terms of our connection with Adam and sin and our connection with Jesus in grace. Again, so it's, it's limited to where the argument is. And a lot of people pull out of these, these verses things they have no business pulling out of these verses. It's not addressing those things. It's addressing the concern of the church of people that can't get on with one another because they see themselves as somehow different from each other. And Paul's saying, no, you're not different from each other. You're all fallen in Adam. You're all made alive in Christ. Okay? You all with me? Let's pick up the, de- let's pick up the details of what he says. Now, it's in Christ we have the much more. <clears throat> we're reconciled. We're, we're, he died for us. We are now saved by his life. We have received this reconciliation. That's our identity in the Lord Jesus. Now Paul's going to pull back and say, let's look at the bigger picture here. Therefore, just as... And so here, that's words of comparison. There's a comparison now that's going to be made. Just as sin came into the world through one man. And again, these people know their Bibles. They're going to know he's talking about sin entering into the world in Genesis 3 through the fall of Adam and they'll know that death through sin God said to Adam in the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil dying you will die so death was the result of the transgression of the of, of Adam the one man death spread to all men uh, because all sinned and there's just like this past tense thing an aorist tense thing concerning the sins of all men all men have sinned. And of course the question is, how have they sinned? And I would believe the right answer is, we've all sinned in Adam. That just as we're all made righteous in Jesus, we're all made sinners in Adam. And it doesn't have to do with what we personally achieved, or personally performed, or personally did. It had to do with the fact that God has, God has as Murray says, governed the world through, through these two men. And so the general picture is that we are Sinners because of Adam's sin. And the reality then becomes that death spreads to all men because all sinned. Um, and then he, then he backs up again and he says, now here's another part of this. You, know, you read the story that follows Genesis 3 and you get to chapter 5 and you get those statements of the great longevity of those people that lived in that time. And the marvel, the wonder is, at least if you're thinking biblically, that they died. The death entered into the world. The death, though it probably could have and should have come upon consequence upon the death of Adam, God in His forbearance allowed life to continue, allowed the human race to 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 flourish. Um, but yet, death comes to each of these persons. Death was in the world before the law was given but sin is not counted where there is no law how do people die if there's no law that says you know keep this law and live keep this law and die remember God said before with Moses I said before you life and death choose life Um, that was the law the law says if you keep the law you live at least to live temporally in 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 Canaan you, you disobey the law you'll die but yet there's no law before Moses gave the law to Israel 
And yet he says death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. Now, in what sense was this sinning? I mean, they sinned, but they didn't sin against the known law. God didn't come to the later generations and say, don't do this because if you do, dying, you'll die. He didn't come and give this express commandment that they disobeyed and, and, and upon disobeying that commandment they died. No, they died because of Adam's sin. Sin entered into the world through Adam. Every successive person that's named in Genesis 5 was not their own Adam. They were Adam's descendants and being Adam's descendants they too were subject to death. Even if like Methuselah they lived you know how many 960 some odd years he died he died death entered into the world through the transgression of the one and Paul says that whole scenario of one man determining life and death issues for the successive generations is a type of the one who was to come it's a picture of what God is going to do in in Jesus that Jesus, who is called the second Adam, or the last Adam, in 1 Corinthians, who comes and is a figure, who comes and restores what was lost through the fall, who comes ultimately to bring the return to the Garden of Eden, um, who comes in the language of the Christmas hymn we sing, to make his blessings known as far as the curse is found, he is the antitype. He's the one who is the corresponding person to the Adam who brings death. Adam's sin brings death. Christ now comes to remedy. He comes to restore. He comes to be the second Adam through whom the sin of the first man is now remedied through righteousness. So he's a type of the one who is to come. And then Paul goes on to then uh, make the contrast of Jesus and his gift, his act, his obedience in the following statements. I believe there's three uh, clear words of contrast. First begins with the free gift. Again, he's going to tell us that there's this free gift that God has given us in the Lord Jesus. He's talked about benefits, plural, but there is this free gift. Um, You read about that in chapter 6, at the end of chapter 6, that um, the wages of sin is death. The free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ uh, our Lord. So there is this free gift that God gives uh, to sinners. And this free gift, he says, is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man Jesus Christ abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. It's not a gift at all, it's, it's a curse. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification 
So Jesus brings justification for many trespasses. In other words, the sin of the whole humanity for which he now brings life and salvation and justification. There's a whole weight of guilt. There's a whole weight of disobedience. There's a whole weight of trespasses that Jesus now atones for, that he pays the price for. Adam's sin was one sin that brought devastation to the human race. Jesus' free gift covers all the trespasses of all the people who trust him and believe in him and brings justification to them all. Again, it's, it's a wide spectrum of grace that's displayed that covers all of this new humanity. That's not just parceled out in small drips and drabs that some people get more and some others get less and some don't get anything at all. Everyone in the church receives this free gift. We're all the recipients of this free gift of God that comes through grace, the grace of the gospel and it covers the many trespasses of all of God's people. And somebody can't say, well, you're a greater sinner than we are, so you're probably not covered in full. You're only uh, partially protected by the blessings of this free gift. No, all God's people in full have their trespasses atoned for. The free gift comes to all unto, unto justification. The free gift following many trespasses brought justification. This justification is common to all of God's people. He says, for if, let's uh, bring up a hypothesis, if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, again, the much more, the much more, will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And so, what did Adam bring? He brought a condition where death reigns. He brought a condition where there's a universality of sin and death. Death reigns, even over those who hadn't sinned in the same way that Adam sinned. And yet there is a reigning of death. Jesus comes and brings a new reign. There's a new king in town. There's a new Lord who's come, who's extinguished uh, the power of death, who's broken the bands of death. He's brought... The abundance of grace, the free gift of righteousness, to reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. And again, it's common to all of God's people who have that same abundance of grace, have the same free gift of righteousness, who have the same life that is bestowed by the free gift of God, by the free grace of God uh, through this one man, Jesus Christ. So, I mean... The abundance of grace, the abundance of blessing, the abundance of the giving heart of God. In this real sense, if you really break it down into the fullness of what we have received, ought to make us most anxious to give grace and righteousness, I'm sorry, grace and acceptance at least, to those who have been common participants in sin and now have a common participation in grace through our participation in the one man, Jesus Christ. 
And then he says, therefore, in verse 18, as the one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so the one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So now we're moving out of the language of free gift into the language of um, justification and life. I mean, those are common things that are preceded, but now it's the act of righteousness that Jesus has performed. It's his obedience to the will of his Father. It's a free gift that comes at the expense of his own life. It's a free gift that comes at the expense of the death that he dies upon the cross. He was obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. So Jesus comes with his hand stretched out in blessing, giving a free gift to all of God's people, and that free gift comes to us at the great cost of his atoning blood, of the death that he died. And he goes on to say then, for as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. So by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Now, I think it's important to say that the language that we find here sometimes seems to be all-inclusive and sometimes seems to be uh, somewhat limited. That you have language that speaks of the all and you have language that speaks of the many. And again, I think what we need to understand is that Paul's addressing the church. He's not addressing the human condition worldwide. He's not addressing the state and situation of those outside of the church. What's the, sta- what's the standing of those outside of the church with reference to the obedience of, of Christ? Um, that's not here. He's not, he's not addressing it. He's addressing people within the church. And what the people in the church need to know is that what Christ has done for us, it extends, first of all, to all believers, Jew and Gentile without distinction, and it extends to the many. Not a small amount. It's not a small amount of grace. You've got to think of it in terms of many. Um, Again, so I don't think all and many are at odds with one another. I think what Paul is saying is think big. Think big about what Jesus did. Think of the big tragedy that the fall brought through Adam. Think of the big marvels of grace that comes now in the Lord Jesus. And think of the freeness of it. Think of the largeness of the heart of God that extends this free gift, this blessing of justification that comes through the cost of the obedience of Christ unto death. And again, when you think of it, it's nothing that we've done. It's his obedience, not ours. It's his free gift, not something we've earned. It's his act of righteousness, not our act of righteousness. So, you know, really what gets emphasized is, again, the fact that it's all based upon what God and grace has come to, to give us in Christ, and it has nothing to do with any works of righteousness that we ourselves have done. It's not our achievement. It's not anything we've attained. It's something God has done quite apart from us. It's what happened in the garden that determined death and sin in the world. It's not what happened when we were born and what starts to get determined through the fact that we've come into the world. We've come into the world as heirs of the reality of the fallen world. We've been born into a fallen world. 
We've been born with a fallen nature. We've been born as sons and daughters of Adam. And we can pine about it, we can groan about it, we can complain about it. The reality is, it's the condition we're in. You know, if someone's born into poverty, you can curse your father and mother, but maybe be best to get a job, right? You say, oh, I was born into you know, terrible conditions. Well, it's sad. People are victims of all kinds of things, it's heartbreaking. What people do to children and the things that children must bear and abuse from adults. It's criminal, it's wicked, it's horrific, it's it's, it's soul shattering, it's scarring, it's, you know, I I remember talking to a woman who told me she never knew that fathers treated their daughters any differently than she got treated by her father. She thought that's something all fathers did. Just how she was, it was horrific, absolutely horrific. I I was in tears listening to her tell me her story. What do you do about that? Well, left to ourselves, nothing really. I mean, you can give some measures of comfort, you can give some measures of saying, you know, maybe your life can be different, don't let it get you down, have a stiff upper lip. But you can say, God's done something. God's done something to remedy this the the evils of what took place in the fallen world, these many trespasses. And this is many trespasses. These, these are sins that you're the victim of. You've been victimized by this person. But, but Almighty God in His free grace and His abundant grace and righteousness has come in the gospel to make a new humanity, to bring about a new condition, a new condition of life that you don't have to be a slave to the old humanity. You don't have to be under the pall of death. You can be in the light of life. You can be in the reign, not of death, but the reign of life that comes through the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we proclaim in the gospel. We proclaim to a fallen, needy world that God has provided the remedy. You say, well, I don't like the way he got us. We, we, we're in this mess. Well, again, don't you like the way God comes to remedy it? It has nothing to do with you. It has to do with everything that Jesus has done. You can't save yourself. But God has come to save you. God has come in an act of free grace and righteousness through Jesus to bring about a new reality, to bring about a new creation, to bring about a new humanity, to bring about newness of life. Now Paul ends the statement with, upon a note that he's going to re- Affirm in some other portions of the coming chapters, particularly in chapter 7, when he deals with the law in particular. Again, that's really the Jewish, the rub of the, of the Jewish, the Jews in the congregation. Uh, where is the law? Where is the law? How do we view the law? How do we view the law that was given uh, to Moses? Where does this fit in? Uh, especially as we allow Gentiles into the church apart from circumcision, apart from Jewish dietary laws, where does the law really come in. Well, Paul says the law comes in to increase the trespass. In other words, it's to increase it's either the measure of the trespass and the fact that now there are new regulations and new 
responsibilities that was given to Israel that they're now responsible to obey. And in their disobedience, that increases their responsibility. Nor can be to increase the awareness of trespass. To bring about an awareness of trespass. One of the things Paul says about the law back in chapter 3 is that through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Sin's in the, in the world. But you see, what law does is law comes to define the trespass. It comes to say, not just that you've sinned against, you, you, that, that you've sinned through Adam in terms of uh, inherited sin, in terms of a representative sin that Adam committed in the garden. But here is sin that you could actually see you've done. You're, you're guilty. You're culpable. You're a transgressor. You've disobeyed. And in the face of our awareness of our disobedience in terms of increasing the knowledge of sin we recognize we have nothing to boast in and we recognize all of our righteousness is to be found not in ourselves but in Jesus if I'm going to boast well, we have the law, we're Jews well Paul's argument is you have the law, have you kept the law? And he argued in chapter 2 in the violation of the law. God has been blasphemed through you Jews. It's not been a, a pretty picture of how the Jews appropriated the law of God. And you can't boast in the law. Because the law increases the knowledge of sin. Increases our awareness of sin. But where sin abounded, where the increase of trespass is understood and perhaps even accentuated by the fact that we violated knowingly and willingly things that were in God's law as Jews, grace abounded all the more. Grace abounded all the more. So why are we talking about law? And it's important in its place because in a sense, it's gotten swallowed up by grace. Grace is now... The thing we're to, to, we're, that in, in Christ we should be focusing on. It's not that the law doesn't have its place. He's going to discuss it in chapter 7. But not to supplant the grace of the gospel. In that sense, we're not under law, we're under grace. Because, you see, law cannot justify. Law cannot sanctify. Law cannot give help. To obey God's, God's words. It can only increase the trespass. And it does. Either in terms of our understanding of our sinfulness. Or, under, or, or our liability. Because as Jews we've not kept God's law. One way or another. Law hasn't helped us. Law has just come to confirm the reality. We're fallen creatures. In need of a savior. That in, in, in Adam. We die. And you can't say, well, in law, that improves stuff. <laughs> you know, that might have been the Jewish argument. Well, there's more than just in Adam and in Christ. How about in law? Let's, let's have a relationship to law. It's an interesting thing that after the fall of the temple, maybe even after the fall of the first temple, a certain measure of this understanding permeated the minds of a lot of Jewish people in the exile, was now that we don't have a temple, what, what do we have? Well, we have the law. We have Moses' law. So we can't bring sacrifice, but we can keep the law. And you get very law-oriented along that 
those lines, and certainly the Jews were. And, you know, when you think of the law in terms of instruction, well and good, if you think in terms of the law as a system of obedience where you can gain merit points and gain um, the divine favor because of your, your, your goodness, you're going to strike out. It, it can never bring us to God. It can never atone for our sins. It can never replace the need for sacrifice. It can never replace what Christ has done. So there can't be anything that's another option. It's either Adam or Christ. It's either Adam where you find sin, death, and condemnation. Condemnation and death. Or it's in Christ where you find grace, righteousness, and life. And those are the options. In the law, it just increases the, the sin, death, condemnation, and death complex uh, of what we are in Adam. Law doesn't remedy. Law makes things worse. Only Christ brings the remedy. Only Christ brings the remedy. And so Paul has really touched all the bases, I think, to humble Jewish understandings of um, the relationship to other Gentile believers and also the relationship to the law. The law doesn't provide a third option. It doesn't provide another category that will give us any grounds to boast in because all it does is it increases the trespass. And blessed be God that there is effective remedy, which is the gospel, where sin abounded, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, that's in Adam, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a new king in town, a king who through his free gift, through his obedience, through his act of righteousness, reigns through righteousness, through the righteousness that he's achieved by his obedience, and that righteousness becomes ours as we believe. And so that grace reigns through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. So grace Righteousness and life is the divine remedy for the sin, condemnation, and death that comes to us through Adam. So, and Murray's really clear on that, that you have this contrast. It's mainly contrast, but you do have the comparison. The comparison is we stand in one or the other. Adam is a type of him who was to come. And you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. And it makes all the difference in the world. Well, I've gone on and I've given you something of a lecture this morning. I don't know if you've all followed me. I hope you have. Any questions before we conclude this morning? You all with me? No? Fairly clear? Good. Good. Well, let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for the gifts you've given to the church and men like Professor Murray and commentaries that he's written that helps crystallize many issues of biblical truth for us. And we're thankful that we have your word to 
be the focus of our concern and to, to ask the right questions. We're thankful for the way in which we can ask why Paul wrote this letter and just from reading it, have a real sense of what he's concerned about. And Lord, we know there's, there's tensions in many churches. There are areas of difficulties that believers have with others because of differences of approach and differences in style and differences of ideas and thoughts in other areas other than Christian truth. And we pray, Lord, that the gospel would be the point of our unity, that Christ would be the one whom we look to, that we would realize the wealth of blessing that you've given us so freely in him, in language like free gift, gift of righteousness, um, grace reigning in righteousness unto eternal life. And Lord, we would recognize the fullness of your grace and love to us and the recognition that we didn't deserve a bit of it. We didn't earn any of it. It's all been given to us freely. Help us to be freely giving to others. Help us not to be looking down our noses at others, thinking we're better in any way. Lord, you've loved us freely. You've saved us without any merit of our own. Help us to be gracious and filled with love and filled with a a spirit of acceptance and reception of all whom you have received, knowing that we've been received by God through Christ Jesus our Lord. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless us as we greet one another this morning, as we enter into a time of refreshments and fellowship. And as we enter into the morning hour of worship, we pray that your blessing and presence would be known by each as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.